Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. This is not a true crime podcast, and boom, just like that, I lost the last two listeners. <laughs> but there's, there's some, you know, I have an attitude about true crime podcasts. I have a hot take, and that is they're not really true. You know, there's something cartoonish. There's something not right about everybody gets cast in these roles as these innocent victims or evil conniving people and you know people are complicated and what i just adore about aaron cobb's story that you're going to hear tonight is you get to hear why she fell in love with the man who tried to murder her and and you get to hear that to this day with him dead she says kind of nice things about it, almost like bizarre things. Like uh, she says that his his pattern, his grouping of gunshots was accurate, was, was she says his grouping was excellent. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's a little weird if you're not prepared for it. Um, I don't know if that's like a sense of humor to deal with it, or it's just like a detachment from the, but she is remarkable. She's not superhuman. She owns her mistakes. It's difficult not to like leap in knowing the rest of the story and say, oh, honey, (laughs) oh, ooh, you walked into the door on that one. You know, you, that, you know. It's difficult not to judge because we know how the story turned out, which was an attempted murder-suicide. And so if you're triggered at all by suicide, violence, shooting, war, uh, you really do need to let a trusted friend who will not be triggered listen to this because it is powerful. It is very powerful because it's real and because the crime is less than 5% of the telling. The rest is about a person who is fully human, who owns themselves and owns their mistakes, owns their pain, owns their imperfections, and It is just breathtaking. Aaron Cobb. This is what's the interesting thing is you talk about abuse and, you know, what people expect is someone hits you, but that is not how he, how he works. This is In Her Words, a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. 
Hi there, I'm Stuart Watson. This is In Her Words, the podcast. I'm not going to take any more of your time. Last week, we heard how Aaron Cobb became a combat Marine. If you did not hear that, or a Marine in a combat zone, if you did not hear that, go back and listen to it. You'll appreciate her even more. This week, how she fell in love with her husband, Jeremy, the nature of the relationship, how it fell apart, how it became really dark, and uh, then how it ended in an attempted murder-suicide. So again, warning, trigger warning if you're triggered. Otherwise, the inspiring story of Aaron Kopp. I always laugh when I tell the story. So people introduced us to begin with. They were like, oh yeah, he's from North Carolina too. And so the first time I met him, and a couple of the girls had talked about how hot he was, and I was like, whatever, I had a boyfriend back home, even though the relationship wasn't great, but that was not what I was worried about. He's like, I'm Jeremy. I'm like, oh, hey, I'm Aaron. I was really busy. And I was like, he's not that hot, and it was kind of it. And so the next time I saw him, I was sitting in a truck with, um, with one of my buddies, and I was like, who's that? And I saw him, and like, he was super attractive. And I was like, oh, okay. So... After that, like, we started to kind of hang out. And so, you know, you have multiple factors. Like, one, I was the Lance Corporal. He was a sergeant. There's a whole fraternization thing, which nobody cared about, especially when you're deployed. And, you know, we're both from North Carolina. He's actually from Gastonia, which was wild. You know, and you kind of had similar upbringings. And, like, you have the same reference points. Listening to music, the same kind of music, and you get kind of get that slice of home. I remember we, li- uh, we would listen to, like, classic rock. Like, we would listen to the Eagles. And then we also like listen to like like the 80s stuff, you know, Guns N' Roses and that. You know, and in your off time, you're just kind of trying to be normal as possible. And uh, also, he had access to get booze, which we obviously weren't supposed to be able to, you know, you're not supposed to drink, you're not allowed to do that. But he had access to booze. And you know, I'm always down to find a party whenever I can find a party. So how did you all have a relationship without getting in trouble, without having it jeopardize your career? There were things going on in my own shop that people were ignoring and overlooking. And I mean, people just kind of accepted it. You, when people ask you, you say that you're just friends or whatever, but they see you together all the time. And part of it's kind of out of sight, out of mind, but they just, people just looked the other way. They ignored it. And you know, there's also this kind of whole thing. You're like, oh, we're deployed. This is probably, this is like a summertime romance type of a deal. And you, you know, you don't take it that seriously. But people knew. I mean, obviously, his command knew. They lived, they lived in the EOD shop. I spent the night there. Like, obviously, everyone knew. Everybody in his chain of command knew. Um, everybody in my chain of command knew. He was, you know, he spent a lot of time there. I'll say this: if you were a female and you, if you were a woman and you wanted any sort of level of companionship, the world was your oyster there. Not that that's what you were there for, but. If we were, if, there was so much, obviously, lack of affection or anything else, but there were so few women there, you know. We were a commodity. First of all, people are starved for affection and human connection. You have that whole thing. It's super stressful. Plus, you have people in their 20s. But, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Now, if something happened, like there was a situation where um, she wasn't in my unit, but one of the women there got pregnant, which... They can charge you with dereliction of duty, and it basically fucks up your career. 
And I don't think that the at the that the pharmacy was you know running around with Plan B. Um, and I'm not sure that contraceptives were available or prophylactics. Now I will say though, if you're before I got deployed, you know, you tell me you're on birth control and they give you a whole, you get your whole, you know, yearly supply to go with you. There weren't throwing condoms around there. Not that I think any of the guys in the Marine Corps even know how to spell that word, you know. But <laughs> the whole thing around sex and, and everything that was there is it's the same thing that is true in life, you know. It's, the woman's responsibility to make sure nothing happens, and then if it does, it, it falls on her to deal with. But while I was there, someone said something to me about how he was married, and I said, I, I was, I didn't, you know, I asked him, I knew that he had like a, I thought he had a girlfriend back home, but I didn't, there was never any discussion of, of that, because that I wouldn't. You asked him straight up? Yeah, and he said no, and I even had, so I did ask him because I that I was did definitely you Google it from no and no and this was like right at the beginning of social media like I'm talking Facebook you know this is 2005 you know MySpace Facebook was not really in existence there wasn't Twitter and Instagram and all the ways that you can do all that and I even I actually asked one of my friends who was in admin who was an admin I said is he married and I gave her his social security number. And she looked it up and she told me that he wasn't. And so I, I said, okay, well, I've kind of covered my bases. Was he married? Oh, yeah. He was married. He basically told me that he had kids and that he was divorced. And But the way that he kind of like brought it up was, ins like, I have something really horrible to tell you. You're, you know, I don't know if you're ever going to speak to me about this again. And so I'm, you know, I catastrophize. I've have that kind of thinking anyway. I have a lot of anxiety. Like I'm worst case scenario. I'm always going to think the absolute worst. So me, I know this is so stupid because we were both in the military and tested, but I was like, oh my God, is he going to tell me he has like HIV and I'm going to die? Like this is where my crazy mind goes. And he's like, oh, I'm divorced and I have kids. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, that's obviously not ideal. And it's, you know, shitty that you haven't told me, but like we'd already been together like five or six months. So I was kind of already in. Um, I think at that time I'd broken up with a boyfriend back home. So that's how I am. Like once I'm invested in someone, that's, I can, you know, overlook and also kind of accept that kind of a thing. EOD techs were, were dying like left and right. I mean, they were because they were getting blown up. I mean, they were targeted. You know, while we were there, his, his very best friend in the Marine Corps. So he went down on an IED, disarmed it. And so what they would do is they would they would go, they would pick up all the pieces because they would log it to see what, what, how it was trending and what they were using to set up IEDs so that everybody could know. Then they take, you know, anything that was unexploded, they took it, they logged the ordinance to make, to see country of origin, what they were using. His buddy went down, they, they had disarmed it, and then he went, and there was a secondary IED, and he was standing on top of it, and it went off. You know, we were all deployed at the same time when it happened, and it was his best friend. And so he got blown up, blew out his eardrums, um, fragged his eye, and, you know, I'm sure it's a traumatic brain injury. And obviously that was really hard for him, but as by the time it was over, did kill his friend. no, it didn't kill him, but a lot of his friends were killed. And so, you know, it, the guy who was his roommate back in Camp Lejeune died. One of the guys that we were deployed with died. Um, but it was multiple. And so every every week or every couple of weeks, so-and-so got whacked. And that's how they would say, like, so-and-so got whacked, so-and-so. And it was 
first of all, high stress job, but they were dying, you know, at an exponentially higher rate than, you know, anybody else. And these were guys, you know, they go to a long school down in Florida and they're obviously, their units are very, very cohesive and, and, and tough. So it, I mean, it was happening all the time at a much higher rate. Y'all are in the same place, and what yep. I'm trying to understand is what your experience would have been with losing friends as opposed to his. Yeah, so for, so for me, it was more in the concept of like losing brothers. Now we did, and I will never forget this, so we'd been there, I don't know, three months, and there was this kid, his name was Tucker, he's from Mississippi or Louisiana, nicest kid, um, he was an MP, and so Whenever they would go out on convoys, you had all the supply stuff and the MPs were the ones who, you know, they were the ones who had, you know, that were doing the security. They were the ones that had the weapons. They were the ones that, you know, had the turrets on the top of their, um, on the, the top of their Humvees and the whole thing. And so one day they were, you know, they were, they were going out on a supply run and on a convoy and they, there were places you weren't supposed to drive, but it's not like these are great paved roads. You're in the middle of the desert, and it's shitty and awful. And driving somewhere, that they, I, from what I understood, they weren't supposed to drive, but the Marine Corps always makes you responsible for everything that happens. I don't know if they hit a pothole or what, but they got in an accident, and they said that he hit his head so hard on the turret that like it, there was brain matter coming out, and he died. And I will remember that hit me so hard being there because it wasn't a combat situation it was just a mistake anything it's just like being in a car accident and it was so awful what's wild is i heard about it and the way that someone just said something to me about what happened i didn't realize that it was him and um and we weren't like super best friends but he was super nice he was a really nice guy and we'd interacted and I realized a week later who it was, so I didn't even go to the service. And one, you feel like a selfish asshole because you're so focused on your whole thing, um, your own existence that you don't, uh, that you didn't even pay it the proper respect. And you know, and you're also going through it like, you know, 22, how you know fragile life is, and you're in this, you know, wildly stressful and you know alien experience. And so that, that really affected me. What happened to your relationship? So this is where it all kind of comes together. So we get home. He left first because he got Bell's palsy in his face. And they, um, they medevaced him to a, a bigger hospital area. And then when they did scans, I don't know if it was MRIs or CT scans, they saw he had lesions on his brain. And so then they sent him to Germany and they sent him home. And never followed up on the lesions on his brain. They didn't know if it had something to do with like Bell's palsy or kind of what it was. He was in, not like a big accident, but like their, one of their trucks got hit by an IED while he was there. And I don't know how much his head got rattled. But so we come home. I'm going through this crazy fundamental shift. We're trying to figure out, you know, our relationship. He's down in Camp Lejeune. He's preparing. He's prepping to go get deployed again in January. I am removed from, I, I don't feel the level of like connection to my family. I'm trying to figure all this shit out. We decided that we're in this together. Um, and I'm, I'm lost. 
And so it makes you, it, you have all this, all, all this unresolved conflict and all this other shit. And so it made me dig deeper into our relationship because he was the only one who could understand me. He was the only person that I had access to, access to that had any inkling of what I was going through. And so, you know, two wounded people. Yeah, two wounded people and two people just trying. So we got back, as soon as we got back on base, you know, they were doing um, a, a, a combat, like they were doing um, artillery, an artillery exercise. And so we have, you know, we hear a bomb. We, you know, we hear that going off and we're all trying to hit the deck. First of all, he's getting ready to, to deploy again. So, that puts everything else on hold your folk you know my focus is him getting ready so january things are progressing we're very very serious we've talked about getting you know we're talking about getting married and uh i get a call from his ex-wife and she tells me she's like we're not divorced we've never been separated she said you know i found out about you while we were, while you were deployed and then all of a sudden you know he wants a divorce and all these other things and i'm obviously i'm like kind of i'm dumbfounded dumbfounded horrified confused and he was actually on his way up to see me when it happened and so you know at that point it's not that long before his deployment We've talked about getting married. We have all these things up in the air and he kind of talks his way through it. He's like, look, I'm sorry I didn't tell you. I thought I could get, you know, the divorce and everything taken care of before you found out. I love you, I wanna be with you. And so I am, you know, at this point, like 23 years old, feel horrible that I've, guilty and awful that I've like impacted this marriage that I never even knew existed. But I'm already committed to this person, they're already they're, they're not getting back together. This isn't one of those situations where like, you know, I'm a woman who was like asking him to leave his wife that I never knew he had. And he's getting ready to get deployed. And then, you know, I think at, at the time he'd already bought the engagement ring. And so we ended up, you know, getting engaged not long after that. And it was kind of one of these things where he's getting ready to leave. We'll settle this shit when he gets home. The most important thing is for him to focus on what's gonna happen while he was there, you know, while he's there disarming bombs. All this, and that was always the thing is, you know, both Marines, you meet in this combat situation, you understand how to compartmentalize and, and my idea of like being part of something bigger than, your, than yourself, like the mission and his commitment to the mission, his commitment to come home safely was more important than how I felt and how this seems so much more insignificant than, than what he's going to do. Now, you know, during his deployment, he was very jealous and very manipulative, kind of like this. You know, I would go out with my friends when I was 23, you know, going back to college and we would go out and drink and have a good time. And he would just give me such a hard time about it, you know, and I did everything I could to, you know, minimize his concerns because I didn't want him to be focused on it. I didn't want, you know, it was always about him. It was about his feelings. It was about his mission. It was about, you know, because that was more important. That was more important. Things will get better when he gets home. You know, and that was balanced with like, he's, you know, he was very charming, very loving. He was gregarious. So you, you balance that, which you kind of learn later on that type of behavior. And also at the time, I'm finally finding my footing of who I am. You know, I've always been very independent, very outspoken. I'm reconnecting with my friends, finally with my family. 
finally getting my footing on who Aaron is, you know, who I want to be for the, you know, the rest of my life. It was wild. It was not fun. There were a lot of, you know, screaming arguments. And the other thing is because of what he did, he had access to a sat phone. So he had the ability to contact me way more than a normal person would have been able to do that. So it, it, it made for a much more antagonistic experience. But it was always when he gets home, when he gets home, when he gets home, it'll be better. By the time he got home, you know, we were engaged and you know, with the engagement, I had a giant diamond ring and the whole thing. Plus at this time, people were still getting married in their early twenties. Um, two of my best friends were engaged to be married. And so it's kind of like, this is the shift. My grandparents met during World War II. Um, they came home, they got married. My grandfather actually had like, still kind of had a wife back home that it was a whole thing. So this was very much, and they had this wonderful relationship, lived their adventures all over the world. And so, and, and you know, this is kind of history repeating itself. So I have all these things in the background that allowed me to kind of rationalize it or think that this is, you know, just kind of part of the process. Things aren't going to be easy. So he actually decides that he's going to get out of the Marine Corps. Um, and become a police officer. We bought a house. We were getting ready to get married. He was getting out of, um, you know, he was getting out of the Marine Corps to start the police academy. And I remember when I moved in to the home, to the house, because he wasn't off active duty yet, I was like, man, I don't need him here. I think I'd be okay living by myself. But, you know, plans were already in motion. And he'd gotten divorced um, after he got back from his deployment, which was awful. I'd actually seen her before that because we had to pick up some stuff from the kids from her house, the whole thing. And I was kind of sitting on the car waiting for the, the whole thing to happen. And they filed one year physical separation and either one of their lawyers called a witness. So I had to be the witness in their divorce and testify that they're, you know, that they hadn't been together, which was, I mean, I'll tell you one of the most awful experiences of my life. She's crying and it's, and to be honest with you, that probably that was probably part of kernels that was planted that I never got over. One of the things that I probably held in the background in our relationship because I just I felt so guilty. But anyway, moving forward, we get married. He starts the police academy. I'm still in school trying to finish up. I saw a shift in him going through the police academy. And in ways it was good for him because it gave him that, you know, that brotherhood that, that he was missing. He was like his class president. Like he's a very likable, cool, fun guy. And, uh, but I, th I felt like a shift in, in him because in the Marine Corps, you're so held accountable for your actions. Everybody's always watching. Well, when you become a police officer, you, everybody else is accountable to you for their actions. You're not really accountable to anybody else other than the presiding um, attitudes of the people kind of in your department. He was never jealous when he was in the room, but he was very jealous about who was around me when he wasn't there. And he gave me a hard time every time, whenever I had Marine Corps duty, my one week in a month, my two weeks in the summer, um, just gave me a really, really hard time about it. Who's around you? Who are you with? If one per and if one guy's name came up too many times, even when I was going through my classes, he's like, oh, you know, he wants to be with you. I'm like, just because you want to doesn't mean everybody else does. It was very taxing and very tiresome. And it was 
all the time. But if he was in the room, it was never like that. Like flirt and laugh and nothing like it. It was just, it was that level of control. Whenever he wasn't there he, and he couldn't control the situation. And then, you know, he joins the police department and you know, when you're a rookie, you're nobody. No matter how awesome you are, you're still a rookie. You know, and he, he, he wanted to be on the bomb squad, right? You know, at the time, the, the thing was you had to be there at least two years. I mean, he knew more about IEDs than, any, you know, than probably anyone there. And he wanted to be on the, the SWAT team, too. And that's just, you know, you have to work your way up, even though he was super fit. You know, he was, I used to call him, you know, G.I. Jeremy. You know, he was very fit, strong, great Marine. You know, he checked all the boxes, you know, for both types of organizations of like the way you want him to look, the way you want him to act, the way you want him to speak, you know, kind of a poster boy, any sort of, you know, military-esque type organization. He was dealing with that. I was also kind of coming into my own and I also got to the point, you know, there are two ways you can deal with someone who tries to control you is you, you know, you kind of cow to that or you lie and do whatever you want. And so that, you know, that was kind of how I did it is that I chose to mostly do whatever I want, you know, within the bounds of being reasonable. I mean, it did, ha eventually I had a very short affair and he found out about it because I wasn't very careful because I think a lot of people, whenever they do that, they kind of want to get caught. And at that time, I mean, I was over it. And so I, uh, I would have, it wasn't to be with that other person. It was just, I was ready to be out. And, you know, now I look back and I'm like, you know, I wish I would have been more mature. Obviously I wish, I wish it hadn't happened one because it was wrong and the other person was married and all the moral you know all that type of thing but the presiding feeling is because i hated that i allowed him to ever have the moral high ground but when you know it was one of those situations when someone accuses you of doing things for you know a very long time you know sometimes it it, may, it manifests it i take responsibility i should have been more mature but it happened and you know Nothing justifies what he did. No, oh, well, certainly not. But we actually, we, and we ended up splitting up for, after that, we ended up splitting up for a couple of months. And then we got back together. This is what's the interesting thing is you talk about abuse and, you know, what people expect is someone hits you, someone calls you stupid, they, you know, they, they insult you in that kind of way. But that is not how he, how he works. Hi, I'm Dr. Kim, the parentologist. As a wife, mom, therapist, and all-around juggler like most of you, I lead a hectic life, and sometimes that means indulging in foods on the go that my stomach doesn't always agree with. Thankfully, Pepto-Bismol provides me fast and effective relief for all kinds of upset stomachs. Having a little too many guilty pleasures at a family barbecue or birthday celebration may lead to indigestion or heartburn, so I always keep Pepto on hand to get fast relief when I need it the most. Pepto-Bismol. Use as directed and keep out of reach of children. So he grew up and he had a very rough upbringing. And part of the skills he learned is, you know, skills of survival growing up poor and, and you know, a, an abusive environment. Um, you know, his 
grandfather committed suicide, his, his father died, of, his biological father died of suspicious causes. They don't know if it was suicide or murder. And so, you know, he, you know, part of being charming was also him understanding how to navigate a very troubled childhood and be successful. And, and so he knew his level of manipulation. If he ever hit me, that would have been over. Um, and it was his manipulation. It was like, no one will ever love you like I do. No one will ever think you're as attractive as I do. No, no one is ever going to feel the way I, you know I do about you. And also, you know, especially in the very beginning, is I never. He made me feel like I never loved him enough. I was never willing to sacrifice enough. Um, that that I wasn't. I was never giving enough of myself to the relationship. And so, you know, that's a real mind fuck, especially, especially when you absolutely love and adore and want to give this person everything and are willing, you know, to overlook the things that I overlooked. I mean, I remember there were nights where I would be like sobbing, crying, trying to explain to him that I wasn't doing something wrong. He wanted everybody to think that we had the perfect relationship and he had the perfect wife. You know, and whenever he was going through the academy, I cooked for all his friends. They came over every weekend. We took care of them. We had a boat. You know, everybody went out with us. Like, he he needed to be likable, and he needed everybody to think we had the best relationship. And, you know, I, I, I very much believe that there was infidelity on his part, but that I don't know that for sure. I committed myself to, um, you know, to bending myself into a pretzel for trying to make it work. Because when we were split up, seeing other people, I mean, he showed up in my apartment one night, drunk, like barged his way in there, and I had to get my mom to talk him out of the house. He would show up places where I was um, and call me and give me a hard time and tell me all, you know, all about all the new girls he was dating and how wonderful his life was, when I just wanted him to leave me alone. And he was always like, Aaron, you don't want to challenge me on crazy. He's like, you know, and I always knew that that, there, that he, he was he and he was one of the most resourceful people I've ever met, in in my life. And that's a great thing, whenever you know you, everything is going wonderful and he's in a rock and he wants to talk to you or you know he wants to make you feel special or whatever. That's great. But whenever you're trying to be split up from this person, not have any contact with them, you know it's awful. And so he finally decided, you know that he had had enough. And, and the other thing was that it wasn't exciting enough for him. You know, he was an adrenaline junkie. And so there was financial struggles, plus he had child support to pay. Plus he still also, you know, wanted to live this fun lifestyle going out all the time. And so he decided to, you know, he decided to quit the police department. And I used to tell, you know, when we were married, you know, all the girlfriends of his friends or whatever, he was so wonderful to them and willing to bend over backwards. I was like, you know, if you were spent half as much time paying attention to me as you did trying to make everybody else like you, things would be a little bit different. So he quit the police department and cashed out his 401k and kind of he was trying to figure out what to do. You know, and I was finally, I'm like, you have to work. And because he wanted to go back in the military, but it, it didn't work out. And he ended up taking a contract job down in Alabama. And so I was thrilled because I said, it's like, you do that. And um, you, I'm not, I said, I'm not going to live in Alabama. That is not happening. 
I'm not following you. And so, but my whole, I was happy. I was like, this is my exit strategy. It was far enough away that I was like, this is, this, this is good. And it had to, he'd only been down there a month or two where we decided to split up. It was more about going after any guy that, that I would see. And, and that was the thing with him. I was never concerned he would ever do anything to physically hurt me. So when we argued, like, he wasn't the one who raised his voice. He never put his hands on me. Um, he, it, it, it wasn't that, that kind of threatening thing because, you know, as big and buff and tough as I was, you know, he was 6'2", like 230 pounds. He was a big man. If he, he could hit me once and kill me. But it was ne he was never physically threatening. And I always told people, I said, I'm not worried about him hurting me. I'm worried about him hurting the people in my lives. Every time my phone would buzz, it's like, who's that? Who are you talking to? Like it was any of his business. And he was just so, so aggressive about that kind of thing. I mean, he would show up where I was in North Carolina, show up at restaurants I was at. He always knew what I was doing. You know, and I wasn't checking, I didn't check in on Facebook or any of that other drama to talk about where he was or to talk about where I was or who I was with, but he would show up. He always knew what was going on. He would call me at work 15 or 20 times. He would text me and text me and text me, and the tones would go from being really, really nice to being really aggressive, you know, just to try to get a reaction out of me. And finally, you know, finally I'd pick up the phone and be like, what do you want? What do you want? And it was, you know, just trying to get a reaction. And, you know, it became very, very clear that he didn't, you know, he wasn't gonna let me go. He didn't wanna let this thing go. No matter how many girls he dated, I mean, he had girlfriends, but he would still make time to harass me and worry about where I was and what I was doing like it was ever any of his business. It was so obviously super frustrating and I didn't realize how much I was living on pins and needles wondering if he was going to show up. I mean, he lived in Alabama. I mean, I was at a CrossFit event that we had and he, you know, he showed up at the CrossFit event and asked the owner about joining our CrossFit gym. So. I filed for separation in 2010, which meant in June of 2011, our divorce would have been final. But of course, he didn't want to you know, sign the divorce papers. So that's what happened. He never signed, but our divorce was finalized. And so that didn't seem, that didn't impact, you know, his behavior in any way whatsoever. But it all came to a head um, September 24th, 2011. So my mom was down visiting from Richmond with her boyfriend and I had, you know, I laugh. I went out to dinner with my friend Amy that night and um, we were having a couple drinks and we we're gonna go out, but we we're both really tired and we were so proud of ourselves. We we're like, oh, Friday night, we're going home early. I had to cross, I had to, uh, to go CrossFit the next morning. I was like, oh, I'll be nice and rested. I was, I was seeing this guy at the time and he was a bartender and, and my ex had shown up and basically was giving him a hard time because they, they knew each other. They weren't friends, but they knew each other. And he recognized that this guy would know who I was dating. He didn't know that I was actually dating him. And he confronted him. He's like, you know, asking about me. And the guy said, he's like, why don't you let me worry about Aaron? And, you know, my ex said, he's like, because she's my wife and the, the guy said, she's your ex-wife. And that was kind of it. Paid his bar tab, tipped the bartender, took the girls home that he was with. And then, you know, he had, I had blocked him on my phone because I didn't want to hear him. And the only place that he could even contact me was through email at that point. And, you know, he, he sent me all kinds of 
you know, emails. That night, he's like, you better pick up the phone. You need to call me. He's like, I swear to God, I'm ever marrying. I know you're going to regret it if you don't, you know, if you don't pick up the phone and we don't talk about this. And, oh, you're dating this guy. He's like, you know, you're so disgusting and all these other things. But this was not new behavior. I'd gotten these types of emails from him before. And I was tired and I didn't want to deal with it. And so I went to bed and I woke up at probably, I don't know, I think mom said it was like 1.45 in the morning. Cause someone flipped on the light in, in my bedroom and I looked there and it was him and I don't know how he got in the house. I don't know if I left the door unlocked or he somehow had the garage code. And I was not even surprised. I wasn't afraid, I was just annoyed. And so I just remember, I'm like, let me throw some clothes on. I'm like, my mom's here. We, we don't need to do this. Let's go outside. And so as I'm kind of dragging him down the stairs, my mom wakes up. She told him, she's like, you don't need to be here. You need to go. I said, mom, it's fine. Um, let me just talk to him outside, you know, to talk him down because I've talked him down a million times. This was not, you know, it was frustrating, but it was not new. And so we went outside, you know, I was standing on our, front porch he was kind of standing down you know a couple down a step down on the sidewalk and we were having a conversation and you know it wasn't a pleasant conversation we weren't screaming at each other and my mom you know put her head out the door she said Aaron you need to come in right now I said just give me one more minute and you know I just remember saying to him I'm like look we both deserve a chance to be happy and he said something and I don't know what it is and at that point you know he had he had a gun, he had a Glock, a nine millimeter in his waistband and he pulled it out. And from best I can reconstruct, you know, it's not the matrix. You can't, you can't outrun or dodge a bullet, but you can, you, your body reacts based on someone else's actions. And so he pulled out a gun and what I think happened is I saw it and I ducked and he fired two shots and one went in my carotid artery and the other went in my mouth, but I must have been parallel to the, to the ground because the bullet hit my carotid artery and then went down, collapsed my lung, and um, hit, hit my vertebrae that went into my spinal cord. And the other went in, um, in through my mouth and out through my jaw and broke a bunch of teeth out. And so my mom said that, and I fell, and I remember, so I was kind of in and out of it, but I remember my mom screaming at me, you know, just stay with me, just stay with me. And I wanted to tell her, you know, I'm fine. I'll be okay. Um, but she said she had to like pull teeth debris out of my mouth and I um, completely lost consciousness. You know, she said for a couple seconds, her boyfriend at the time did chest compression. She said I took in a huge gasping, you know, breath of air and they call, you know, they called the paramedics. But um, I just remember her screaming at me. You know, she's like, just stay with me, Erin, just stay with me. And I wanted to tell her I was okay. Um, you know, obviously I couldn't. And so I, I remember the paramedics came and they put me in the ambulance. And I remember the paramedic was, I couldn't talk, but, I, you know, kind of trying to go through and assess how cognizant I was. And I remember he said something to the effect about, if I could feel my feet. And I don't know if I shook my head or what I did, but I remember I cataloged that away because I couldn't. Um, I couldn't feel my legs. And so, get to the hospital. And I remember 
before they put me out to do surgery, repair my carotid artery, I looked up and I saw the faces of the surgeons and they had terrible poker faces. They looked very concerned for me. Um, so I've said multiple times, I'm like, guys, you, need, you don't know what we'll remember. You need to work on that. Did you think I'm gonna die? No, never. I was like, I, this, is, this is kind of always my mentality about everything. I'm like, it'll be okay. Like, it'll be fine. Were you in a lot of pain? No, I don't remember being in any pain. I think the shock was so strong. Now, as soon as I remember regaining consciousness, got awful amounts of pain. I, but the night of, no, I think that there was too much going on. So when I regained consciousness at points, you know, I don't know how much is real and how much is all the floaty fun drugs that they had me on. But basically, so they had to repair my carotid artery. And, you know, I'll give the trauma surgeons credit. They did a really great job. You know, typically they make those scars pretty ugly, but they, they, they did a pretty good job. And so they repaired that initially. Um, the jaw surgery came a little bit later, but, you know, in coming to, I was in awful pain. You know, one, my jaw, because they had to basically piece it back together. And at the time, it was, they did a great job. It, you know, plates and screws and all the fun stuff in there. Um, but I, you know, they had to put a central line in because my kidneys didn't want to work and they were trying to flush fluids and I had a feeding tube and, you know, all the other fun stuff. I was all, I had a chest tube in because I, I you know, I'd had a collapsed lung and then you have to go through horrific respiratory treatments to keep you from getting pneumonia. They basically like shake you up and then you have to suction out the mucus. It's really disgusting. My mom has a good, big growth factor and she had no problem with my blood, but that part she had to exit the room. But one of the first things I remember asking, and I couldn't speak um, because of the tubes, and I'm left-handed, and I had a brachial plexus injury in my left hand, and so I couldn't write. So I was trying to write on a whiteboard, you know, with my right hand, you know, drugged up. But one of the thing, first things I asked my mom was like, you know, is he still alive? I guess I left out the other important part. He shot me twice, then he shot himself in the head. Were you aware that he had done that? Yes. I don't know how, but yes, I was aware. And I can't remember if, so I don't know if I remember seeing it. I definitely remember hearing it, um, but I knew it happened. I knew it, I knew before I went down, because it, it happened like one, two, three, they said there were four shots, so one, two, three, four. And what I think happened is, so, you know, whenever they teach police officers shoot, was it um, two in the chest, one in the head? And so his grouping is excellent. The grouping is like one inch space. I think it was one, two, three, and then he shot himself. They found one of the bullets. Mom found one of the bullets lodged in her second story. But what I think is whenever I ducked the third one, they found, I think they found, mom found something in the second story of the house, and then he shot himself. So, um, yeah, so first of all, my poor mother and her boyfriend. I mean, so what they did is, you know, they grabbed me, went over to check to see if he was alive. I guess he was still breathing. They kicked the gun away. The police came. My mom couldn't come to the hospital because she was like witness to a crime and they didn't know if she'd, you know, been part of it. So she had to meet with the, you know, had to meet with the detectives before she could even come to the hospital, called my dad. Um, and what was wild is one of the 
one of the responding CMPD officers, they heard them talking about me and said, oh yeah, the, the, the guy was a former CMPD officer. And the police officer went up with my mom and he, he said, is Erin your daughter? And she said, yeah. He said, well, I crossed it with her. I know her. I'll, I'll drive you. He's like, I'll drive you to the hospital when we're done. And my mom still says to the day, to this day, that was like the kindest thing that could happen, you know, in, the, in that circumstance. So you come to and you, the first thing you ask is what happened? Yeah. Is he dead? And she said, yes. And I remember feeling so unbelievably relieved. It was, I knew, I said, I just felt like, I, I just said to myself, I'm free. I'm finally free. I will never have to deal with this. Um, because that was one of the things, sickly, I used to joke when I would leave work on Fridays, I'd say, oh, well, if I don't show up for work on Monday, he killed me. And I guess maybe somewhere in my subconscious, I really thought that that was a possibility. But I, part of me was like, I thought he would never leave me alone. Like how far away, I was looking for jobs, you know, in Chicago and other places. Knew that he would never leave me alone, but I didn't ever acknowledge to myself that I thought that that was the way that it would end. I thought he would beat up a guy I was dating, you know, not not this. And so, and my parents were freaking out because they didn't know how to tell me that I was paralyzed. And so, but I, thank goodness, somehow filed that around in the back of my brain, you know, when the paramedic asked me on the way there, and they told me. And they, now to be fair, in the beginning, they don't know the prognosis. They have no idea. Some people have spinal cord injuries that they recover from in some sort of some form or fashion. You don't know if it's a complete injury, an incomplete injury, you don't know. At that point, I was just so happy to be alive. You know, that's your initial response is you're just, you know, you're like, okay, I can make it through. And I have an amazing support system and I have the best friends, you know, I've always, you know, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life, but picking my friends has never been one of them. Amazing people. And so my boyfriend, life partner, whatever you want to call him, Phil, I mean, we've been together. I joke that he showed up in the hospital and never left. Um, cause we had dated on and off, you know, before this happened. But once he heard what happened, he was my, I don't know, my calm in, my, in the storm. And they still laughed. Apparently, when he got there, I didn't want him to see me um, because I knew that my face was jacked up and I said, I don't want him to see, him to see me ugly, <laughs> which he still gets mad at me for this day. I mean, I was, I was Quasimodo chic for sure, uh, you know, because I had had jaw surgery. My entire face was swollen. I had jaw surgery, you know, I had trauma to my face. I don't see any scar. You can tell that you... Yeah, okay, under the chin line. Yeah, and I was, I was missing teeth. Yeah. All kinds of teeth. I still had my, I still had my canines, which I told everybody meant I was a vampire, and <laughs> I would hiss at people in public when they stared too long, but. <laughs> How did you go through the process of sort of understanding there will be no miracle here, I will not oh. stand, I will not. You know, you do your, you're initially in intensive care, you know, you do your whole ICU thing and they had to start pulling tubes and such, you know, pull out the chest tube, pull out your feeding tube, pull, pull out your central line. Um, they were concerned they were going to have to do another surgery because of my lungs. Thank goodness they decided at the last minute. One of the other things is, you know, there was so much trauma to my throat um, between the bullet and everything else. They wanted to put me on a ventilator. 
which they do a lot of times, especially with people who are paralyzed because my injury level is a T2, and so it affects all sort of your autonomic system and everything else. But also your diaphragm, you know, kind of helps you breathe. And apparently my mom said I fought them like crazy and didn't allow them to put me on a ventilator, which I'm so glad because it's really hard to get off. Um, yeah, so you go through that, and then I went into the rehabilitation center at the hospital. And that's where they start to try to say, okay, you we need to start getting you strong and teach you life skills to deal with your new situation. And you're just trying to figure out what your new situation is, right? Obviously you can't stand, which at that point, that's the most, I was so embodied, I was so athletic. I was, I ran, I did CrossFit. You know, this was very important and central to who I was. I worked out all the time. And, and so I'm like, I just wanna walk again. We're not thinking about the stuff like, so with your autonomic system, you can't regulate temperature. So I was freezing all the time. You don't have your diaphragm that pushes down. And, and so it helps you speak, helps you project. Of course, at that time I had a paralyzed vocal cord. I could only, I could only whisper. It was awful. You know, just all this, all these things that regulate your system. Plus, you know, you, you can't go to the bathroom the same way. You have to do intermittent catheterization. You're dealing with everything. You go from being the most independent, fully functional person. And at that time, not, not just because your spinal cord injury, but because it's so new, you can't do anything. And I have a brachial plexus injury, so on my left hand, I can't even hold anything with my left hand. And so I am a hot mess. And, you know, I had a tremendous amount, you know, my CrossFit community supported me. I had all, all the people visiting all the time. I was genuinely happy to be alive. I also, you know, you're in sh complete shock. Physical shock, emotional shock, this whole thing. At first, you know, I, you, you take going through rehab, I'm like, well, I know how to work out. This is good, I'll be good at this. Well, you're so unbelievably weak. Um, and you have, I have to say like, everybody wants you to be fit and not be overweight. But if you go through a, a physical trauma, they want you to have extra meat on your bones because it's good, it helps you, helps survive. Well, I went through like a very relatively low fat, high energy person. So I went through something like that and I went from, you know, being very muscular to real thin, like very, very quickly and having no reserves. Plus I have to eat, you know, mechanically separated food and such. How were you able to not sort of become despondent? Well, there was that. You know, I'm trying to adjust to everything. I've had this horrible trauma. I'm still in a ton of pain. My body's not going to heal. I don't know if I'll ever walk again. And then I get the news essentially from the doctor there that's like, there's no hope, your injury, which is not what I needed to hear. It just made me angry. But, you know, I, I, I'll, you try to compartmentalize and you try to basically take it one day at a time, but it was horrible. It was awful. I mean, the fact that, you know, you're my identity was in not just how I looked, but how my body performed. It was, it was gut-wrenching and it was awful. And, you know, I started, I did some therapy, you know, some cognitive therapy while I was in re the rehab facility. But, you know, I was so sick and so weak whenever I got out of the hospital that part of it was just basically still survival mode. And I ended up with a terrible um, injury. I had a sacral wound. 
um, that I got in the hospital that turned into a stage four pressure sore that almost killed me. So the first, the first six months until I went to the Reed Foundation was literally me trying to survive. I was hospitalized multiple times, pulmonary emboli that the doctor said couldn't believe I wasn't having a cardiac event from these terrible, um, you know, I had this terrible sacral wound that was basically, my body was eating itself. I was probably down to 90 pounds. I didn't have any energy. I didn't, I was, you know, I got to the point where I was ready for it to be over. I, uh, if I hadn't gotten it fixed, I would have eventually died because my body would have shut down. But by that point, I was over it because I felt so awful. I would sweat 24-7 because my body didn't know how to react to pain because it can't feel it below the injury line. Um, so I'm sweating constantly. I'm exhausted. Everything hurts. I have no energy to do it, anything. And at that point, I was like, you know, I, I cannot live like this forever. I can't live in this pain. I can't. I can't do it. Plus, my body was going to give out. I mean, it, it, you know, it was eating itself to death. So I, I got into the um, Shepherd Center down in Atlanta, and that was game changer. First of all, the hospital is amazing, but I had surgery on my sacral wound, and once you get there, they're not about telling you what you can't do. They're like, "What do you want to do with your life? How far do you want to go?" And then. Everybody there from, you know, the janitorial staff to the doctors to your PTs are amazing. And now I had the surgery. And after you have that kind of muscle flap surgery, I had to lay for 30 days. And they slowly stretch it out. But I was in bed for 30 days. At that point, I'm going to be honest with you. I was kind of still okay with it. I was very tired. Um, and I got to read a lot. But then as you, they, after you get through that point, that's when you start PT again. And then it was like, oh, cool. First of all, I felt much better. I had energy. I was able to be upright. I wasn't in pain all the time. And that was kind of like, that was a shift. And so, you know, you go, I did as much of their inpatient therapy as I could. They had a program, but I mean, I got to be around other people with spinal cord injuries of every level. People who had, had it easier than I did and people who had it way harder than I did. You have people that are on you know, ventilators, people who have to, you know, like Christopher Reeve had where they have to blow in their chair to get it to move. And then there's some people that can walk a little bit, you know, but you get, you get to see, witness everybody kind of in that space. Plus I'm a competitive human and, you know, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be the, I don't want to be the weak link here. And, and, and everybody's attitudes were better. And it, I was down there away from everyone, which is what I needed to be in a space where I could compete and be with myself and kind of come to terms with, with what it, what the situation was and, and, and not, and look, everybody, I needed all the help that I could get, but to have to do things for myself and have to function on my own as an independent human. And so by the time that was over, I had a, you know, I had a, a huge shift in my attitude. What was most helpful in getting you there on the shift in attitude? Well, I, I guess I would have to say it was, one, realizing that I was going to get better. That, because nothing had gotten better since it had happened. Everything had gotten continually worse. And then, I mean, that was it, that, there, that I could feel better. I mean, that, that my body would start to respond in, in ways 
plus, I mean, everybody there was just so amazing in the, you know, you want to swim? You go swim. And you kind of see the opportunities and you see other people there thriving and living their lives, you know, with that situation. You know, you have people that are therapists there and, and work there that are in wheelchairs that have been injured for 20 or 30 years and you meet them and you're like, oh, okay, like you can have a life. Um, I mean, I was still looking crazy because I didn't have teeth, but I knew I was getting better whenever I wanted to start wearing makeup again. And I was like, okay, the vanity, the vanity has rolled back in and, and you know, things are going to be better. How are you not consumed with rage and bitterness about Jeremy? Oh, well, that's easy. Um, he's gone and I'm not, I'm not going to let someone else impact my life in that way. Um, he, he's, he's, he has no influence on my existence in any way whatsoever. I choose to live my life. I choose to live my life in the way that I want to. I have amazing friends and amazing people. And I made that, you know, you make a choice. Well, you make a choice every day, but you can, I, I thought, I said, I can be a miserable asshole that nobody wanted, that no one wants to be around. Or I can live my life the way I want to and have fun and have cool people doing it with me. So why would I, why would I choose to be miserable? But I also don't have that. I don't have that in me. I don't want to be miserable. I don't want to make other people miserable and I want to have fun. So, you know, you deal, I, I go to therapy, you know, I've, it, I've been on anti-anxiety meds at different points through this. I believe in therapy a hundred percent, you know, but you make that choice. I want to have fun. I want to have a good life. I want to laugh. I imagine there's some people who probably say, Aaron, you're a hero. When you hear that, what do you, how do you react? So what I like to say is life has a way of kicking you in the ovaries or the testicles or whatever, you know, cringy thing you can think of. And everybody goes through trauma in different points in your life. Everyone does. And you, you choose how you react to it. Now, sometimes you have to swim in the awfulness of it. And, you know, sometimes you need therapy, but you make the decision on how you want your outcome to be. I don't want to be miserable, so I choose not to be miserable. I have to ask this just out of curiosity. How are Jeremy's kids? Um, I don't. They're So they're doing well. Um, I don't have access to them in that. I am friends with the mom on Instagram. They are both incredible athletes and both going to college on sports scholarships. So I hope they're living their very, very best lives and they will continue to do so. They seem to be successful and thriving and I hope that continues, you know, forever for them. You seem to be doing really well. I am. That's amazing. Thanks. And you also seem to be able to have a huge network of people who are supporting you not just professional help but a huge oh yeah yeah and, and that's what's important that, that, that's what i try to tell people you can't control a lot of things but you can, you can control in your life and i would say my recruitment skills of in the personal area are amazing i am you know lucky to have incredible women in my life that i love and adore incredible friends incredible family and that you can control you, you choose to be around people who enrich you and make you better. And that doesn't mean that they always tell you what you want to hear. But 
that's the most important thing is surrounding yourself with good and amazing people. If we got struck by lightning today and uh -huh. the only thing that survived was this little bit of digital audio, what is your legacy? Um, wow. I hope it's, you know, that giving people, you know, a little glimpse into the wild weirdness that is my life that, you know, they can, you know, you can take away, you know, not some Disney wild thing that everything works out and everything's perfect, but that you can experience a, a, a horrific trauma and that you can make the decision to, to move forward and have the kind of life that you want to have. You seem happy. I am. I'm great. I, you know, every day is not wonderful sunshine and roses and work is not fun, but you know, I have a, a happy, balanced life and that I've managed to cultivate. You know, some people might say in spite of or because of what's happened to me, but I just think that, I think that trauma and turns you into more of the person that you were. So I think if you are an asshole, it'll make you more of an asshole. If you were a pretty happy person, it gives you perspective on life and, and makes you happier, you know, I, and you know, no one wants to go through trauma, but, you know, learning and, you know, growing experiences just make you, I think, a more actualized human. Aaron Cobb, you're amazing. Thank you. You're an amazing person. This was a great privilege. This was a huge privilege on my part. So thank you for your time. Oh, you're welcome. I, I have to... I have to really restrain myself because I think Aaron Cobb belongs on a stage and um, I think there's tremendous amount of healing and instruction that we can get from her story. And um, the folks at the Christopher Reeve at the, at the hospital are making a film about her. Um, I, I would love her, I don't know what it is, a book or whatever, something beyond this podcast. but. I just was incredibly moved and inspired and indebted to her for her straightforwardness. And I feel a little bit guilty at dragging her back through that. But by the same token, she seems to have gotten, you know, with more than a decade, um, a lot of distance, a lot of therapy, and a lot of healing around it. And others can heal by hearing it. And that's why I'm so grateful and so appreciative to her for, for the telling. Thank you, Aaron. In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Katherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported Man Listening and however you have supported us 
from the beginning and also the In Her Words podcast. It started as manlistening.com. Thanks so much. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much.